And if you'd bow your heads as we prepare uh, to read the word. Lord, as we dive into your word this morning, written down and translated for us many years ago, we pray that you would open our ears to hear what you would say to us and open our hearts to grow from what we hear. We lift up Matt as he preaches on the message that he would be a vessel to bring your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And now if you will turn in your Bibles or your bulletin, um, I'm going to read two passages, uh, both from 1 Samuel, one from chapter 8, and one from chapter 16. So starting in 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, and cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them, in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And now continuing from chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, the Bethlehemite. For I shall have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears me, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Concentrate, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me, him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance 
or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet my youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I was um, complaining about the text that I chose to preach to a few people this morning, and I want to welcome you to uh, mock me, not during the sermon, but later, uh, for my own choices. Um, As I get older, the challenging parts of both the gospel and the scriptures bother me more. I wonder what your least favorite book of the Bible is, whether you're a Christian or not, because The claims in this book are so essential that we are so essential to being a human. If they're true, if the text is reliable, we must wrestle with them. Not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to explore this text because of its historic and evidential and existential claims that it is the only way we can flourish as humans. And I wonder what your least favorite book is and why. And I wonder what your favorite book is and why. And if you want to email me, I would enjoy reading that. It would help me grow and think, consider you when I'm working through passages and texts. Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, probably written, I think, by one of Samuel's disciples, in part because Samuel dies in the middle of it, clue that it wasn't written by him is challenging. It's very stylish. It's very stylized. There are, uh, I I think, the most tragic hero, perhaps, in all of the scriptures, in Saul. Perhaps one of the more beautiful heroes in Jonathan, a conflicted hero in David. And what happens at the beginning is tragic. The people reject God. And it's been 400 years since God took the nation of Israel and created it out of their slavery in Egypt. We can sometimes read the scriptures and it sounds really fast, like, oh, they were done with God. 
Some of them had tried very faithfully, like the story we saw last week in Ruth, the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Others, not so much. Time of the Judges was pretty rough for, I think, most of the humans in the nation of Israel. And you see glimpses of it even in the reading. Samuel, while he's grieving that the Lord has rejected Saul because of lots of mistakes that Saul makes, I'll talk about those in a moment, is both grieving him and he's nervous because he knows who Saul is and he knows the nation. He's nervous to go and anoint David. And the reason that we have the book of 1 Samuel is because it happened. And I know I say that all the time, but it is essential that we remember that these are events that happened in space and time and history, even when we don't know as many details as we want, even while Simon, I thought he did a good job with the reading. That's a tough reading to have all those Hebrew names, right? Even as we know more about maybe the sons of Jesse than we think we need to, and less about some of the decisions that Saul made that led the Lord to reject him. These are books that are fully expecting us to accept that they were written in a specific time to a specific people, and they're still beneficial to us, among other reasons because it shows what happens when we tell the Lord, as we are prone to do, I know better what I need. I don't want you as king. I want to live like everybody else. I wonder if our version of this is, I want a religion I can practice when I feel like it, 2.8 times a month, and I want that religion to speak peace to my heart, but I may or may not follow it. Do you know where your faith is? If you're considering the gospel of Jesus, perhaps it's in a different way of doing life. But what's inevitable is putting your faith in something. There's no no option. There's not the option of putting your faith in nothing. What it means, if we're not sure where our faith is, is that our faith is in ourselves. And 1 Samuel is a tragic, stylish, somewhat depressing picture, chapter by chapter, of what happens when we ultimately trust ourselves and not God in a day today way. The people reject the church-state nexus that's built at the end of Exodus and through Deuteronomy and that we see flourish for about two generations in Joshua and then go wildly south in the book of Judges, yet there are still glimpses of beauty we see in Ruth, men and women who remain faithful to the Lord and serve him and love him. The people reject the theocracy, and so Samuel, who I think was kind of curmudgeonly, he seems begrudging in some of the ways he goes about his work. Perhaps the most interesting example is in 1 Samuel 28, which I'm not going to unpack. It's the tension the writer leads us into. Samuel's mom's name is Hannah, and she's one of the beautiful parts of this story. She is a mocked woman, who does not return the mockery. She is bold before the Lord. She's so bold in her prayers that Eli the priest thinks she's drunk and tells her to stop being drunk in the temple of God. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm praying fervently. And he says, and we can't tell by the way he responds whether he's paying close attention or not, but he says the Lord is going to answer your request. 
If you are here last week, we talked a little bit about boldness. And if you know me, you could tell I got a little... I tripped myself rhetorically a little bit because I was celebrating the way that faithful and bold women in the scripture are celebrated. And the reason I got tripped up is because boldness in and of itself is not good. But boldness before the Lord is almost always honored. Samuel's mother is a lovely and bold woman. And this is where the scriptures are beautiful if we'll attend to them, if we'll pay attention. Why do we know the story of Hagar, a woman who mistreated a little and was very, very mistreated, who cries out to the Lord and the Lord hears her? Why do we know so much about the woman named Leah? In the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's called the girl that no one wanted because God saw her. And the story of Hannah is very similar. I think the writer uh, is expecting us to remember those stories, except she does not respond in kind as those other women. Although in her song, in chapter 2, she does remember that she has enemies, but only to the Lord and then to us by extension. Hannah is full of hope and expectation. I asked a very trusted friend, when is hope? Like, what, what do we do with our hope for healing as humans? What do we do with our pain before the Lord? And he essentially said, we want to live in between. We want to remind ourselves in between of hope without it turning into expectation so that if this doesn't happen, our faith crumbles. And what he was getting at is there is healing, and yet it will not be full in this life. Hannah, li- Hannah lives in that tension beautifully as she prays before the Lord and the Lord answers her prayer. One of the interesting things about Samuel, the book, Samuel, is it just regularly reminds us who's actually in charge. At one point, Saul, after the Lord has rejected him, goes to confront Samuel. And the thing I would like to know that we don't know very much about is this school of the prophets. Samuel goes to the school of the prophets to confront Samuel. Saul goes to the school of the prophets to confront Samuel, and he can't because he's in the presence of worshiping people, and the only thing he can do is prophesy. And we don't know what kind of prophecy this is. We don't know if it's speaking truth. We don't know if it was um, prayer that was kind of beyond words. We don't know if he was singing. We just know that the king does not actually have any power compared with the Lord. Saul is perhaps, in my opinion, one of the more tragic figures in Scripture. He's absolutely terrified by what other people think of him. And that, in and of itself, isn't sin. Perhaps reminds us of ourself and our fear of what people think of us. But then the response to it is to continue to go before the Lord, which Saul does sometimes, but then he doesn't do other times. And we don't get all the details, but it is tragic. In chapter 15, after Saul disobeys, not for the first time, what he was instructed to do by Samuel, Samuel says this to him, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. 
and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And if that sounds unfair to you, that means you're reading the text with your brain and your faith engaged. And there are things that we do not know, and yet again the scripture invites us into attention. Samuel continues to be kind, though straightforward to Saul. David continues to be kind and straightforward with Saul. Multiple opportunities to respond to Saul trying to kill him by killing him, and he doesn't. Same thing with Saul's son, Jonathan. The people reject the theocracy. Samuel anoints Saul, and I think it's probably the most glaring biblical example of be careful what you ask for. Asked some friends and crowdsourced this a little bit, got a lot of interesting pop culture references. Most latest one was Jafar asking to be the genie in Aladdin. The people wanted a king that they could see. They wanted him to be handsome. Saul was very tall. Would have been welcome in this church. We have a lot of tall humans. And it went poorly because that is not what they needed. What they needed was to trust God. And so God allows Saul in order to then highlight David. And in 1 Samuel, David is a good and beautiful and passionate worshiper of God and human. And if you know the rest of the books that overlap with him, David probably troubles you a little bit. And I think what the scripture invites us to do is neither love nor despise David, but to see his worship of the Lord and his repentance and his prayer life and his passion and see something about the character of God, not of David. In the wilderness, David's story is beautiful. When David is in service and in battle for the Lord, we see his motive, which is what the Bible's getting at when it says heart. In Scripture, heart is not your emotions. Your emotions are part of your heart, but your heart is larger than that. It's your motivation, your motivation as a human. David becomes incredibly close in friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son. It ends poorly because he's Saul's sons, and yet their friendship is a beautiful reminder that that is one of the great gifts of the kingdom. And we see the way that Jonathan responds to Saul, continues to love him, continues to honor him, does not follow him when he is not humble before the Lord. And of course, I'm skipping the big famous story, right? David and Goliath, David and the giant, and you're David, and your enemy is your, your job or the challenges in your life, and the five smooth stones are devotional and whatever, and you can slay that giant. Those of you that know me well are already laughing. Listen, no. That's not why the story is in there. First of all, the story is in there because it happened. Second of all, the story is in there because what we need is someone to stand between us and great evil and sin and do the work that we could never do. David is a type of whom Christ is the perfect example. I would love to preach that motivational sermon, and I couldn't do it because it wouldn't last 
You know it wouldn't. Why am I preaching first? It's 2022. Don't we have enough problems? Don't we need enough help managing our schedules, much less our budgets, much less our friendships and relationships? Yes. Why am I not preaching on that? Because first of all, I don't have enough wisdom. Second of all, it wouldn't last. What we need is our hearts to be put at rest before God through faith and trust and allegiance to Jesus. Then we approach those things, and first of all, the pressure's off. Second of all, we simply receive the wisdom of the Scriptures, most of the time done in community. Meaning, receiving by faith the gospel then frees you into those conversations and the wisdom that you need for those smaller than your need for God issues in your life. And the challenge for me at 45, and having preached a number of sermons on David, is to love or despise him is to forget the gospel because the gospel is not be like David. The gospel is not notice the beautiful stories near him. And there are a lot. First Samuel is a lovely book, though challenging. There's a lot of name-calling. Saul calls Jonathan names. Hannah, in her prayer to God, kind of calls some people names, but it's prayer. She's not reviling, but... Uh, Saul calls David names, David calls Goliath names, Goliath calls David names, and like below the belt names, literally and metaphorically, at the same time. You're reading this and you're like, what is this about? It's about showing us the heart of God who continues to pursue his people. When God says to Samuel, I will not hear their prayers, it's not because he has forgotten them, it's because he's given them what they asked for, and as it went poorly, he gave them what they actually needed, was, which was a king who would stand before God and pray for the people and lead the way that God told him to lead. And he doesn't stay in that lane forever. Next week, Corey will answer all of your questions about that perfectly. <laughs> Am I right? But what David does do is he stands between the people and God on their behalf. He's not the only one. They had priests and Levites. And he does so beautifully. One of my favorite stories in the scriptures, the end of 1 Samuel chapter 30, there's a raid and the Amalekites had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. I'm in verse 2 of chapter 30. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Which is not a king like the other nations, but a king that they needed to lead them in grieving before the Lord. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Man, there's a lot in that verse. Have you been bitter in soul? But David strengthened himself in the Lord, which doesn't mean his fear went away, but he reminded himself of who God is. And therefore, what God has called him to do. And David sent for the priest and inquired of the Lord. I'm in verse 8. Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him, Pursue, 
for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. And David struck them down, I'm skipping to verse 17. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. There's one of the many tensions of the Old Testament. God never condones this. He allows it. And it almost every single time causes trouble. Nevertheless, and by the way, Samuel predicted that it would happen. If you have kings, they're going to make bad decisions and it's going to harm people. Anyway, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David. What do you think 99% of kings 3,000 years ago do now? The 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow and who had been left at the brook. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows, a little commentary from whoever wrote 1 Samuel. Then all the wicked and the worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go up with us, we will not give them any of the spoil we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. So gracious of the wicked and worthless fellows. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stands by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. David leads them in grief. He is a type for which Jesus is the more perfect version. Jesus is a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, and is always near through the power of the Holy Spirit. David then inquires of the Lord. Because of the work Jesus did, we have the same opportunity to regularly, through the study of Scripture and community, and especially in prayer, inquire of the Lord about our life and decisions. And then we see grace. David giving the same spoil to those that hung out with the baggage as to those that spent two days in hard-fought battle. Jesus told a story in Matthew 20. God gives graciously as he sees fit, not on the basis of our work, not in a way that would be fair the way we think of fair. Everyone receives what is due. What would actually be fair is for no one to receive salvation. But God is so loving that he pursues his people and gives them new life. As depressing and like all of the Jurassic Park 2 through 6s as 1 Samuel is, where the people think they know better, this time it'll be fine. It reminds us how prone we are to think that we know better. And the Lord is gracious and merciful 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to remind us and encourage us to remind ourselves as often as we're able of who he is and receive that new life. The gospel does not begin with bad news, but there does need to be bad news in it because we are saved from something. In this particular case, what we're reminded of is saved from thinking that we know best how to live and to love, to be in the world, to interact with God and neighbor. Into life in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your incredible fatherly patience with all of your children throughout history and time. We thank you for sending a king who is without sin. We long for the day that he rules over this earth in ways we can see and sense and fully understand. In the meantime, we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, we trust you. Would you help us to trust you quickly and easily with our mind and our hearts and our decisions, our bodies and our lives. Amen.